Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, Ken discusses a new angle on the aesthetic argument for God. Uh, Ken, uh, I think I got this from you yourself. Whenever there's something new in theology, you tend to raise red flags, but you're not going down that path when you say a new angle on the aesthetic argument, right? That's right. I'm I'm a, I'm a traditional guy. I'm one of my one of my most important goals in life is to die to die an Orthodox Christian. So I. Uh, I get nervous when people start telling me anything new. If you know, if, if it's not at least 500 years old, if, or maybe even older, I'm not all that interested in it. But I do think that sometimes you can take old ideas and see a new application of them, and that's what I want to I want to present today. All right. I'm, always, I'm always nervous too when I see someone talking about a fresh interpretation. Of some <laughs> yeah. Of yeah, even the Apostle Paul would appreciate it, right? <laughs> uh, Ken, maybe for the sake of people who are, again, coming along and, and newer to the podcast, uh, tell us what you mean by the aesthetic argument and then what your new angle is. Yes, if we think about, uh, you know, I, I often say that people today, we, we are, we, we've been given kind of a postmodern point of view, a, a postmodern zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, if you will. And of course, a lot of issues today, uh, particularly since the time of the pandemic, but even before that, uh, there's a lot of discussion about what we would call uh, ident identity politics, race, gender, and class. And there is debate within the Christian church and outside the Christian church about things like social justice. Um, well, I think if you went back a thousand years to the Middle Ages, you would find that Christians, they also talked about three things, uh, but those three things were truth, goodness, and beauty. They thought that's the prism of understanding the world, and, and they thought that those were eternal transcendentals. Now, those aren't the only three. Thomas Aquinas, for example, he came up with at least a couple more. He would talk about being, and I think oneness was another one of the transcendentals for Thomas Aquinas. So these are qualities and characteristics that really um, come, they come from God. They are true of God. I mean, God is ultimate truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, um, you know. God is the ultimate goodness, uh, spiritual goodness, moral, moral goodness. They flow from the nature of God. You know, we, we don't want to commit the fallacy of thinking, well, what's God's relationship to goodness? Did he invent goodness kind of arbitrarily? Or is goodness stand outside of him? This is called the euthyphro challenge. No, most Christians... Most Christian thinkers, theologians, philosophers have said that goodness comes from the nature of God. It flows out of the very being God is. God is a maximally perfect being. God is uh, a morally good being. Now, uh, 
one of the three that doesn't get as much discussion, in my opinion, is beauty, truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, and I think that this is very powerful. And, and notice that Christians try to argue that God exists, and we try to appeal to truth. We say, look, we can, you know, we can set forth arguments for God. We can see God's existence in the causal relationship of the universe or the design, uh, or people, C.S. Lewis, talk about all of us have these kind of inbuilt morality, and the best way to explain morality is not evolutionary psychology, but that we have, uh, you know, there's a moral lawgiver, and we've been made in his image. Well, one that I think doesn't get enough discussion is beauty, and that's what we mean by an aesthetic argument. Is it possible you could create an argument for God uh, less about reason, rationality, and truth, less about morality, but focusing on beauty. And, you know, beauty is something that has not gone out of uh, favor. Uh, I know secular people, they would not be interested in going to church with me on Easter Sunday or, you know, Christmas Sunday or, you know, Christmas time. But if I said, hey, would you like to go to a new art museum? They might say, yeah, I'm all over it. Well, what's the best explanation for beauty? Why, why is there so much beauty in the world? Why are there so many different varieties of beauty? Why do human beings have qualities where we can uh, appreciate beauty and we want to incorporate beauty into our life? I mean, how many people, have you ever met anybody who says, I don't like any kind of music? I met one student, one time he told me at Cerritos College, he said, no, I think music is just largely noise. <laughs> thought, wow, you are very different than <laughs> other people. Uh, how many of us don't have some appreciation for literature? How many of us don't have an appreciation for film, for painting? Or how about natural beauty? Uh, how, many, how many of you don't, appreciate going to Yellowstone? Uh, how many of you don't appreciate, you know, going to Sequoia? Uh, the natural beauty, Dave, how, you know, when, when you look at some of these images of outer space and the wonder of these galaxies and the beauty that is represented there, I, I wonder if there isn't more of a need uh, in our time to say, look, you may not be interested in truth or morality, but I'd like to introduce you to an aesthetic argument, why God needs to be there for beauty. Now, ultimately, I think to, to present the truth of Christianity, you're going to have to, you're going to have to track back to truth and morality. Why? Because, well, um, you know, if you can't guarantee truth, then, you know, that is self-defeating. Something has to be real. Something has to be true. And of course, Christianity has a lot to say about goodness. Our problem is we don't have a lot of it. And we need a savior. We need to be forgiven of our lack of moral goodness. Uh, so you'll have to track back the truth and goodness, but I don't think we talk enough about beauty. And what I want to say about beauty is I, I want to say that I think we should think of God as a maximally perfect being. 
this, this is kind of Anselm's thinking, right? When Anselm is uh, reading Psalm 14, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. Anselm is on his knees worshiping the triune God. And he says, ah, uh, reductio ad absurdum. Uh, you know, if you don't believe in a infinite, perfect God, then there is some contradiction that comes out of that. And so Anselm develops this argument and says, you know, God is the greatest conceivable being, but if he doesn't exist, then you could conceive of something greater than the greatest conceivable being, but that's a logical contradiction. Therefore, God must exist. And what I like about Anselm is you don't have to see anything. You don't have to look at any design parameters. You don't have to ask questions about cause and effect. Anselm presents an argument that is largely, you're just thinking about God and you discover God has to exist. Now, the ontological argument has never been the most popular. The teleological design argument, the cosmological, the universe had to have a cause, a first cause or kalam, probably the most popular argument from God may be the moral argument. But I'm kind of going back to Anselm, and I'm asking myself, what can I learn from these Christian thinkers? And I'm taking an idea from him, Joe, and I'm bringing it to the present, and I'm saying, maybe we could think of a, a new way, and the new way would be this, that, um, you know, what's going to be great about encountering God is not that you have a new body, that, you know, you no longer have high blood pressure, you no longer have diabetes, you no, no longer have obesity, you know, you no longer have all of the pains and difficulties that arise, uh, no longer cancer, you know, you're going to have this new body and that's going to be pretty cool. It's going to be probably like and unlike Jesus's resurrected body, right? That the, the resurrected body of Jesus, it was the same body, but it was now changed. Philosophers talk about continuity and discontinuity of that spiritual body, that, that new body. But I don't think that's the real importance. I think it's encountering the Lord, the beatific vision. Uh, now, I don't know what that's going to be like. But we're going to encounter a being that is perfect goodness. We're going to encounter a being that is perfect holiness, perfect justice, a being that is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. I, I wonder if we won't have something like an awe, like we see these remarkable images from space, or you see a baby born. Uh, the sense of awe. And, you know, um, I love, the, uh, I love the, the catechism of the Presbyterians that, you know, what's the chief end of man? To, to, to know God, to love God, and to enjoy him forever. Um, you know, there, I have a lot of yearning in my life. I have a, a lot of longing in my life. And I think C.S. Lewis was right. I think Augustine, Pascal were right. We've been made for God. And we're never going to be satisfied or fulfilled until we encounter him. Now, what will that be like? How will we distinguish the three persons of the Trinity and 
what what will it be like to worship God? Now, by the way, a lot of the secularists, particularly the um, new atheists, they say, man, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, he says the God of the Old Testament is about the most despicable uh, figure in, in all of literature. You know, he's, he's vain, he's jealous. Well, uh, it's true. Uh, Yahweh says he is a jealous God, and it's true that even Jesus lets people worship him. I mean, how, how can that be right? Well, what if God is perfect goodness? What if God is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, perfect justice, the greatest conceivable being? I mean, the, you know, I'm attracted to my goodness. I mean, part of the attraction I have to my wife is she she has goodness. She, there's an empathy to my wife. There is a sensitivity to my wife. I'm also attracted to her physically. She's pretty, and I'm attracted to her. Um, but what if you then had God, who has all of these qualities in absolute goodness and perfection? Wouldn't we then say, I want that. I want to devote my entire being to that. And what about being jealous? Well, I don't think jealous is always wrong. Um, you know, if my kids, uh, if they decided, you know, I don't need mom and dad anymore. I'm going to devote all my attention to, you know, this new friend I have. He's a drug dealer. And, uh, you know, he's, he's bringing me into all kinds of interesting and illegal activities and you know i'm going to put my trust in him i don't i don't need my parents anymore well wouldn't all of us long wouldn't we be jealous and say no uh we want you to come back to the relationship because we love and care for you so i don't think god is immoral because god lets people worship him or that God is jealous. God knows what's best for you and me. And he says what's best for you is to enjoy him forever. Now, I don't know what that's going to be like. I, I don't know, but I have, a, I have a foretaste of it now. Now, let me, let me stop there and see if you have some interaction before we take a little deeper dive. I always like to characterize it in the way that you just did, but in, in, in terms of the shadows, you know, when you look at a, a shadow, it's a shadow of something that's real, and you, you see the shadow, and you can tell something about what the real thing is, but it's not the same thing. Uh, you wouldn't want to trade, if you were going to be given, uh, you know, a, a, a new bike for Christmas, and, and your mom and dad said, uh, we'll give you the shadow, but you can't have the bike. You wouldn't be very happy. Or my lunch. Or, <laughs> yeah. So my diet might improve with the, the shadow, you know. Right. Uh, oh, wait. I've got too big a shadow at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the, the world that we live in, the scripture tells us is just a shadow of what God has for us in the new creation. So it's there's a continuity, but there's a discontinuity. There's a continuity in that you 
you know, there, there's going to be kind of adventures. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, things to do, things to discover, relationships to enjoy in this new creation, but it's going to be so far beyond and superior to what, what we can, you know, only just imagine from the shadow that we see in the world that God has prepared for us today. You know, I like to say to my kids when they were growing up, I said, you know, I said, if you ever longed for something, you know, maybe you wanted to go on vacation uh, and you went on the vacation and it wasn't quite what you thought, you know, it was good, but it wasn't everything that you wanted. Or, you know, maybe you, you know, you got a new swimming pool or, you know, something, got a new car. And then after a while, I got to clean that pool and I got to buy gasoline for that car. And it's kind of like, yeah, they're pretty good things, but it's not all that I thought it would be. But I, what I tell my children is you're never going to be disappointed in God. You can never get to the end of God. You can never exhaust God. To use an analogy, it's like a great book. You know, I've read confessions a couple dozen times. I never get to the end of it. Better than confessions, uh, the Gospels or the book of Psalms. I've read Psalms. In fact, in our church, we pray through the Psalms. We have responsorial where the, the, the vicar, the pastor, he reads part of the Psalm and then the congregation responds with the other part. And I look at this book and I think, why, why do all my favorite theologians, why is their most favorite Old Testament book Psalms? That's true of Augustine. It's tr it was true of Calvin. It was true of Luther. There's something about the book of Psalms, the, this poetry, where you can talk about the, you know, God. Or, or when I'm at home, I, I look at, uh, we have two dogs, and one of them is a shepherd. And, um, you know, I, I, I will often talk to my wife, you know, this is how this dog has been uh, inbred, that it, it's, a, it's a shepherd. It watches over, and, and that God is the good shepherd. God is the one who watches over our lives. You know, he's always there for us. And uh, this is an extraordinary thing. Joe, comment, question. No, I'm tracking with you. I'm anticipating so your next thought. Let, let's then go a little bit further here. Um, now, I, uh, I grew up uh, a Roman Catholic, and I, I was thinking this morning, boy, there were a lot of things I didn't understand about Christianity or Catholicism growing up. Um, I, uh, I was baptized as a four-year-old at a Catholic church in Long Beach here in Southern California, St. Athanasius Parish. That's something I, I feel like it was an honor to, to have been baptized at a, at a church named after one of my great heroes, Athanasius. But my parents kind of fell away from their Catholicism. They had personal problems and difficulties and you know, we'd only go to church occasionally, Christmas, or, you know, I, I was never confirmed. Um, I didn't go to confession as a young person, but as a teenager, I kind of, well, we went through a crisis in our family. My, my brother, Frank, committed suicide, and uh, that got my attention. Um, and I started thinking, my brother 
despair overcame him. Despair overcame his will to live. And I started thinking, you know, I, I have a certain sense of despair. Is there, I need something that will give me a reason to live and a reason to die. Quoting Soren Kierkegaard there. Uh, and the Lord worked in remarkable ways um, out of that great tragedy. Um, I was introduced to C.S. Lewis. Out of that great tragedy, I was introduced to the New Testament. And I kind of took back my faith. I uh, went from being a heathen, started going to church on, I went to church seven days a week. Uh, in the Catholic church, there's usually a, uh, a mass you can attend early in the morning. That's what I do. And then I'd go to school or work. Um, and then slowly and gradually, I became much more dedicated to my faith. Uh, I met Walter Martin and um, I was wrestling with where I, what church I should fit in, what part of Christendom did I belong. Um, I came to the conclusion the Bible has no peer. Protestantism is not perfect, but, it, but scripture has no peer. I think even Catholics and Orthodox would agree with that. Um, so I became a Protestant. Now, I've spent time in various churches of growing up Catholic and then my teenage years, Roman Catholic. Then uh, I was educated by Lutherans, Concordia University, Missouri Synod, very conservative Lutherans. That was good transition because Lutheranism was probably the most Catholic of Protestantism. Then I, um, I uh, was encountered Reformed theology and uh, read the great confessional statements of uh, the Belgic Confession and the Westminster Catechism. And uh, I became a Reformed Christian. And then I took another step a few years ago, I became an Anglican. And I, what I like about being Anglican, and I I'm not trying to persuade anyone to be an Anglican. I, I, I want to persuade somebody to be a historic Christian. I'll let you decide where you, where you belong. And I can, if I can tell you a little bit about my journey, if that helps you, great. If not, you'll decide for yourself. But one of the things I like about being an Anglican is that there's part of the church that's Catholic and part of the church that's Protestant. And I kind of feel at home. Now, um, one of the things that I find the most pleasing about being a member of the Anglican Church is the Book of Common Prayer. Now, I, I'd read from it a, a number of times, uh, particularly when I was in a Reformed church. People would, some of my Lutheran friends, some of my Reformed friends exposed me to the Book of Common Prayer. I read through it and I thought, this is a masterpiece, but I kind of lost sight of it for a while. Well, uh, in the Anglican Church, the conservative, theologically conservative Anglican Church that I'm part of, the Anglican Church of North America, it's, it's a Reformed Episcopal Anglican. Uh, unfortunately, the Episcopal Church in America has suffered from progressive Christianity, uh, like so many of the great denominations. But uh, in our church, our liturgy comes directly from the Book of Common Prayer. So we have a confessional service where, um, you know, we're read, we're led immediately uh, 
to the Ten Commandments, we're led immediately to a confession of our sinfulness. We then are read from Scripture, the Old Testament, the epistles, uh, the gospel readings, and we have a liturgical service where we pray uh, scripted prayers that go back, some of them 500, sometimes 1,000, some of them maybe 1,500 years ago. In fact, some of the things I say in liturgy as an Anglican, I said as a Catholic and as a Lutheran and as a Reformed. So some of this is, is well-experienced uh, in my own personal devotional experience. Now, I have to tell you, I read the Book of Common Prayer and I think, what kind of theologian could have put that book together? The Trinitarian prayers, the Christological prayers. J.I. Packer, who was himself uh, Reformed, but he was Anglican, he said the Book of Common Prayer is the Bible arranged for worship. And what I've experienced uh, in my own church now is I, I actually realize that I'm to be glorifying God, that part of the critical importance of going to the church is not just reciting the creeds, not just hearing scripture read, not just hearing the importance of a sermon and applying it in my life, but that I'm there to glorify the triune God. And I read this book and I think, Joe and Dave, what kind of theologian could have put this book together? It, it's, just, it's just a masterpiece. And it just weaves scripture in, and it, it's able to talk about the incarnation, the trinity, the atonement, the resurrection, and the, the language of it. And I think, my goodness, I, I just, now I'm getting scripture in a different way. I used to get scripture in the law and in the gospel and in the sermon and in the Bible study. And now it's part of this liturgy. And um, I then think to myself, um, how in the world did the book of Psalms come into being? How, how is it that, what motivated uh, the compilers of the book of common prayer to put it together? And there is a doxology, there is a beauty that just drives me where whereas before i've always been an analytical person you know i'm always i'm always interested especially in apologetic arguments or or scientific arguments or his, historical arguments and i've always been a student of god's word but now this this sense of wanting to worship the lord know the lord to encounter the lord and it it leads me to a new twist on the aesthetic argument. And that new twist is um, that I don't think I could, I don't think you can explain the book of Psalms or the book of common prayer, which is based on the book of Psalms, uh, purely by natural processes. I, I think that the book of Psalms, the book of common prayer, they think of God as this maximally perfect being, this, this perfect being, a perfect loving being, perfectly holy being, perfectly just being, has all power, 
it's everywhere present. I think God is timeless. I, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of an oddball as a Christian philosopher. I, I believe God lives in an infinite now. I think all the classical theologians got it right. But I think that when I look at these, particularly the Psalms, and then I look at the Book of Common Prayer, I think, I think the only way that this could have come to be is that uh, there is this perfect God that's motivating this. It is God's divine perfections that we're seeing in, in this. Now, um, by the way, I'll take another element here and then we can come back to it again. Um, I remember watching a, a movie a couple of years ago. I, I think you two watched it because I think we, we talked about it on one of the podcasts. And that was a movie about the young Tolkien. You remember that movie? Mm -hmm. uh, so it was his early life. He was a boy and, you know, he's in a foster home. He was in an orphanage. He met his wife there, went into World War II. And, uh, you know, it was quite an interesting story about the young Tolkien. And, and I thought what was interesting is at the end, near the end of the movie, after the men who survived World War I got home, the priest, the Catholic priest that had such a big influence on Tolkien, he was telling people, you know, I sometimes meet a, a mother and she lost all of her sons in the war, three of them. And he says, I don't know what to say. But he said, I, um, I just use words of liturgy. Now, you know, this has kind of come back to me in this sense. Um, there's something wonderful about the liturgy. Uh, one of the parts of the liturgy I like the most is at the end of the service where the priest or the pastor or the vicar, he says, you know, you know, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the congregation responds, thanks be to God. Uh, I remember when I was first started studying New Testament Greek, I noticed a pattern when Jesus had risen from the dead and he would appear to his disciples, he always had a greeting peace be with you. Irene umin, peace be yours. And you know, I, uh, I, I'm pretty active on social media. I have two Facebook pages, my own personal one, then an RTB one. I have a Twitter account. Um, and I, I'm trying to uh, learn from C.S. Lewis that if I write books and people read them, I think they they are owed some attention from me and and to acknowledge that and to, to communicate them that I appreciate them reading my books and to try to help them answer my questions or or admit the errors in my book. I just say the editors did it, Joe. That's <laughs> my explanation. But um, you know, sometimes I get into these difficult arguments because people want to they differ with me. They want to disagree with me. Now. Um, Sometimes I'm in the mood, sometimes I'm not in the mood. But I've noticed even with some people where I've had kind of a clash, that if I can stop and say, you know what, I disagree with you, and I know that this is an important disagreement for you and me, but you know what, peace be with you. Um, 
I have found that the words of scripture and the words of liturgy, this priest said, I don't know what to tell mothers who've lost three of their sons in World War One, but I just, I give them the words of the liturgy. And the words of the liturgy come from the book of Psalms. They come from the gospels. And, you know, this guy named Cranmer, this brilliant, this genius, uh, he was a British theologian at the time of the Protestant Reformation. Now, and I always tell people in the Anglican connections, I say, when I see Thomas Cranmer, I'm going to, in heaven, I'm going to say, uh, Cranmer, you magnificent genius, I read your book. Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's a movie line from Patton. I hope all mm. my listeners mm. will understand that. But uh, so, Joe and Dave, I, I wonder... I, I wonder if the if the medieval churches didn't have a place where, you know, some of the people couldn't read in the Middle Ages, but they could preach the gospel through the cathedral. The artwork of the cathedral conveyed these ideas. The liturgy, you know, I there are things I said in the liturgy as a child, I can't unremember them. Uh, there are biblical passages, there are Old New Testament passages, there are turns of phrases that they stick in my mind. And I wonder if in some ways that isn't a sign of this maximally perfect being. Mm -hmm. And literature, right? Now, you, you can say, as one lady did, uh, there's a gal, her name's Kathy, that comes on my Facebook, my RTV Facebook page. And she, by the way, said this. She said, Ken, people could point out other great works like Shakespeare and say the same without necessarily pointing to God, right? So I, you know, I, I shared with her about this kind of Anselmian idea that, that um, I think when you read through the Psalms or you read through the Book of Common Prayer, you start to get a sense of this maximally perfect being i mean god that's complete love i mean i i love my wife i, I think she's pretty i like her, her red hair i i like the way my wife looks i've always uh i've always enjoyed her physical beauty but i i am even more attracted to her empathy you know she, she always knows who's sick and who needs help and you know and and before I know I'm sick, she's already downstairs getting me some hot tea, you know. Um, well, what if you encountered a being that is perfect love, perfect beauty, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, um, all power, all knowing, unchangeable, um, all of these kind of qualities. And, and if we don't see that in literature, and, and that's what I shared with Kathy, I said, look, um, you know, I, I wonder if Shakespeare's influence is, is that Shakespeare was actually a pretty good student of the Bible. There are ideas that come through Shakespeare that kind of draw you back to this kind of, you know, Christian theism and the human condition and um, I wonder, too, if there isn't, uh, I, I wonder if there isn't 
something we find in literature as a pointer to God. And so, again, this abductive reasoning, this, this truth, goodness, and beauty. I mean, guys, people love literature. People love music. They love paintings. They love the outdoors. They, they are seeing, they're seeing, to use Dave's word, a shadow of the ultimate reality. And I wonder, are we, are we using, Joe, I wonder if we have, I wonder if the aesthetic argument is underutilized and if we, if we failed to kind of plumb the depths of it. I don't want to say anything new. I think Anselm has already done it. I think uh, Cranmer has already done it. I think there's nothing new here. It's, it's historic Christianity, but it's, it's kind of looking at the literature and saying, why does everybody like Tolkien or Lewis? Yeah. Ken, uh, on this idea of uh, uh, beauty and the aesthetic argument, uh, I think Christians can look at the Psalms and, and see what you're, what you're talking about there. Uh, I think you put it this way, that it points to God as a maximally perfect uh, being. So, what are we to uh, think about when we see the Psalms or the Book of Common Prayer, which you have uh, talked about as well? Uh, should we be thinking, um, because this comes to us in such a beautiful way, there's an elegance, there's a creativity, it, it seems to transcend, uh, uh, you know, human ideas and point to God as a maximally perfect being? Is that kind of a way to, to look at it? Yeah, I think what J.I. Packer would say, Joe, is that good theology is to lead to doxology. You know, good theology. I mean, I like a good theological debate. I, I, want, I want some real substance. I want to talk about the, you know, is the Son eternally begotten of the Father? I want to talk about the two natures of Christ. I want to talk about what is the you know, what are we to make of the cross, uh, penal substitution, you know, what, what is it all about? But that book, that book, the Bible, and these theological discussions are ultimately, as I think Packer would say, they're to lead us to worship God, to, to love him and, and, and to know him. And um, I think part of I think part of the liturgy that I've encountered as an Anglican through the Book of Common Prayer, it has taken me to a new level, not just an intellectual dialogue of these great truths, but to move beyond them and say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are like a perfect family. They are, uh, they interact with one another in, in such a way that uh, they, they are love. The reason John could say God is love. It's not like Allah or even Jehovah that is alone in eternity has to create human beings or angels to get fulfillment. There's something about the Trinity. There's something about in the Old Testament, I am that I am. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the, the Psalms again, uh, could you look at a uh, Psalm like uh, Psalm 119? Uh, that is so long, and uh, when I when I read it, and, and I haven't read it in a while, but uh, I remember thinking at one point, 
how many different ways can you speak about the the wonder of God's law? Is that kind of what you're getting at? It's like um, God's law is is perfect because it comes from a being who's perfect. <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly right. That you know, we look at these great works of literature, and what's what's greater than the wisdom literature, the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs? Uh, we look at these incredible books. We hear all these stories. I mean, they're narratives often. We, 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 we hear the ways that, that we're told about God, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I think, wow, that's, Dave, maybe, you know, in your work, you know, God owns the, owns the cattle on a thousand galaxies. I mean, you, you can see where these ancients were trying to come to grips with a God, a, a God that cannot be defined, a God that cannot be totally comprehended. And they're using these analogies to kind of speak of the Lord and his law. And, and, and then you think, but there's a being behind all of that. I mean, Joe, you are a, uh, you love natural beauty. Uh, ever since I've known you, you're, you're a hiker, you love you know, to get away from, you know, you like to be alone in the woods and take in its beauty and all of those kinds of things. It's a great form of exercise for you there. You love that. You're passionate about it. But what you're seeing is the tip of the iceberg. What you're seeing, there is a reality beyond it that, that there's no categories. It's, it's totally transcendent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I was on Twitter and I said, I think there are going to be a lot of libraries in heaven. And an atheist said to me, why would you be interested in libraries? You're, you don't care about reason, rationality. You're not, you don't care about books. I said, I don't. Uh, you know, I don't know what heaven's going to be like, but I don't think it's all the activities. I think it's, I think it's the, the the beatific vision. Um, you know, Augustine said, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. What is that going to be like? And if that is, so I'm going to come back to Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor, New York City. I like Tim Keller. He is, uh, he is I think, a unique pastor theologian. He's a pastor, theologian, apologist. He wrote a very good book on reasons for God. He's Presbyterian, conservative Presbyterian. Uh, Keller said, and I think this is an interesting point, particularly when you consider that he comes from a Calvinistic or Reformed Presbyterian background. He says that in his mind, people have to want to believe before they can believe. Now, there are a lot of theological issues with that provocative comment. What does that mean? You have to want it before you before you can believe it. But I wonder, have we not have we not gone to the appropriate degree of telling them how great God is and what it will be like and whet their appetite and make them jealous and then move from beauty back to truth and goodness? Hmm. Yeah. By the way, I write about all this in my book, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined. I mm. talk about longing and yearning and beauty. And uh, so a lot of that is here. But I, 
I wonder, I wonder if we, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis said, uh, pre, it's better to encounter pre-Christians than post-Christians. Pre-Christians, paganism, the everything's new, everything's bright, everything is great about Christianity. Post-Christian, ah, I tried that. Mm. Converted. Um, that was yesterday. Um, I wonder if we don't have to turn people around and say, no, uh, not only is Christianity true and good, it's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Lewis is surprised by joy. The story he tells in that autobiography is communicating that same idea that that uh, his experience of joy, uh, which he didn't fully comprehend or understand, but would get glimpses of it. And it wasn't until he came to Christ that he, he found out the source of it. Yeah, I mean, Dave, I remember when we were in London, uh, we went into some of the cathedrals, went into a Catholic one and then an Anglican one. And you asked me, what do you think of this place? And I said, well, I, I want to get down on my knees and worship God. Um, there's just something. How do you describe beauty? It, it's, it, it's not, I, I can't quite do it with words. I can't tell you exactly. I, I don't know. I don't even know if equations, Dave, would do the job. <laughs> Oh, uh, equations although, are beautiful. Although they have an elegance <laughs> all their own, right? Right, right. They, so how do you how do you talk about a god? Or or here's what Augustine says in um, in the Pine Coffin edition of the Confessions. The first passage is, uh, "Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's Majesty? Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's Majesty?" Another way of putting it is, can you ever say enough about God? Mm. Now, you know, I can brag. I can, I can say, you know, my Lakers, they got 17 titles. Or, or I can say, you know, America helped win wars. Um, but can you ever say enough about God? Is, is any praise worthy of his majesty? Well, we're finite creatures. Can anything we say ever be enough? Here's the good news. It's not, but he still accepts it. Mm. Wow. But it's never enough. Mm -hmm. All right, Ken, thanks for your uh, encouragement there. I guess one uh, way to look at it is, uh, especially for people who might be regular uh, fans of RTB, maybe that's not the right word, you're going to get a lot of... Uh, teleology, cosmology, you're mentioning this earlier, but don't forget there are other uh, tools at your disposal, yeah. uh, including this argument, the aesthetic argument, and here's a new angle on it. Uh, maybe that's a way to, to sum it up uh, there, Ken. So yeah. thank, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, if you're looking for summer reading, uh, Ken mentioned uh, Anselm there. That's in classic Christian thinkers. You'll read all about him and others so there's a book for you to read if you haven't picked it up yet and while you're at it pick up christianity cross-examined by ken as well both those books are very readable and you will uh, feel like you've uh, gotten a, a good uh, 
education on issues that you may not be familiar with, but that you find eminently useful in all your engagements. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this uh, podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast so you don't miss any. You'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.